we're going to dive in. We've been in a series called Carols of the King. We've been looking at the spontaneous songs of those who encountered Jesus the first Christmas. And so turn, if you you would, in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 is where we're at. We're going to look at Simeon today. Simeon and his song. And uh, these spontaneous songs we've seen from Mary the first week and Zechariah and now Simeon and then the angels next week are, are not like measured kind of self-conscious responses to Jesus. Like this is like Boomer Sooner or Ride'em Cowboys after touchdowns, right? Like it just kind of flows out explosive from the heart. That's what these are. And so we're going to read this song, Simeon, absolutely blown away by the goodness of of God so much that he had to sing. Starting verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. So Jesus We wouldn't have Christmas apart from you coming. And the season, the gifts, the presents, all the parties, all that stuff just fades to black in comparison and in light of you and your glory and your reality. This isn't sentiment. It's not just festivity. This is the very power of God. God come to earth. So I ask that you would wipe away sentiment and niceness. Um, I pray that the, the chaos of Christmas, of hurry and worry and, and, um, and even family and shopping and schedule and work, just I pray that you would, you would push it aside and you would give us the grace of being right here and you would give us listening hearts and really responsiveness inside. I pray you keep me from saying anything that would stray away from your word and you would get all the glory and praise in the name of Jesus. And the church said, amen, amen. Okay, well, when I was uh, four years old, I saw the Grand Canyon for the first time. But, but through the course of my life, I really didn't remember it. So um, this day was going to be like the day that, that I really saw the Grand Canyon. I was so fired up. We were driving from California 
back to Oklahoma, and our boys were about six and four, and I'd mapped out the path. I mean, it was going to be awesome. I was going to take our time, enjoy it all. Well, not so much. So the first mistake was um, we decided to caravan. And, and the thing about a caravan is it's, it's fun to be with people and kind of in a train and all that. But when you're wanting to go somewhere and like be somewhere, it should be every man for himself. I mean, it just should, right? We're headed to the Grand Canyon. Seven hours, let's do it. Um, you know, and then with the caravan thing, it's like everybody has to pee like a hundred times. You know, like, why, little toddler? You can hold it. Then, this is crazy, people that, like, felt the need to eat. Also, weird. We're going to the Grand Canyon, you know? So it's the, the movie Vacation, right? Clark Griswold, Wally World. That's me in this moment with the Grand Canyon, okay? So um, we're racing against the setting sun from Phoenix to Flagstaff. And I'm just trying to get there to see this thing. Got to get there. Fun has to happen. And uh, the, the sun is setting my left. My, eyes, my wife's eyes are just like rolling constantly on my right. Uh, my boys are whining in the back, right? Tension is rising. So we're running. Literally, I'm running with my boys up this inclined parking lot. And I can't find it. Like, who can't find the Grand Canyon? I can't find it. it. There's a scenic view, and I'm looking for it, and I'm looking all around, and then all of a sudden I get to this point, and I look to my right, and it's like, whoa. I mean, the indescribable beauty of God just hits me, and all my, like, all stu- my stupidity and my selfishness and all the angst of all those moments just evaporated in the view of this that I could just barely take in with my eyes. Um, and I kind of had to catch myself, make sure the kids didn't like fall over the ledge. It was like, oh, oh right, there's a canyon. Um, the, the pictures are uh, really uh, funny because you see them, the boys are like trying to fake smile. Their eyes are like half dead. They've just been put through the ringer. But that experience on a much, much, much higher scale um, is what Simeon experienced in this moment. Right? I'm sure he wasn't a jerk like me, right? But here he was on this ordinary day, what he's been waiting for, what he's been longing for, it happens. Christmas happens to him. God was faithful to his promise. The reward is worth the journey. The reward is worth the journey. And in that moment, he says two things, two things about Jesus in a song and in a prophecy that if we receive them, will absolutely change our lives for the good. Okay, two things. Here's the first. God has provided a savior. God has provided a savior. Let me give you a little bit of background, some context that I think will be helpful. This is a little over a month after Jesus was born. And Luke is real clear uh, that Mary and Joseph were law-keeping Jews, right? Jesus, they had him circumcised on the eighth day, right? 40 days, right on the dot, presented him in the temple, 
Okay, that's real clear. They did it according to the law. They would have traveled 10 miles from Bethlehem to Jerusalem and camped out the night before outside Jerusalem with a newborn. Okay, so these are two very exhausted people and they're poor. So Joseph would have felt a certain measure of shame about not being able to buy a lamb for the purification sacrifice. He could only afford two little pigeons. It's called the sacrifice of the poor. And they would have traveled through this noisy temple complex, a lot of people praying, people buying and selling animals for sacrifices, right? Um, Suddenly this old man, a total stranger, approaches them. Now, moms, let me speak to you. Do total strangers and new babies mix well together? Right? No, right? It's like, get away from my baby. (laughs) Don't even look at my baby. In fact, you need to just go away from life. They don't mix. So here's here's the scene inside the skin of Mary and Joseph. They're tired, ashamed, anxious, probably short fuses. But we don't have anything in the Bible about Simeon besides this little section Here's the things that probably help Mary feel safer about him. Verse 25, three things. He's righteous and devout. Luke uses old saints, Zechariah, Elizabeth, later Anna. Here's Simeon as his key witnesses to Jesus' coming. Why does he do that? Well, he's showing off the fact that the ones who were faithful to God, they did get it. They saw this baby as the Messiah. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is on him. To this point in the book, Luke has already mentioned the Holy Spirit in a chapter and a half, 10 times. Holy Spirit is important to Luke. Supernatural occurrences, miracles, angels, all that. Here with Simeon, Simeon, three times, the Holy Spirit is on him. The Holy Spirit has revealed something to him and the Holy Spirit uh, brings him at just the right moment in to see Jesus. Amazing, right? What's the point? Well, the Holy Spirit always points to Jesus. Like a a high-powered funnel, the Holy Spirit is always pointing to Jesus. And it is a reality in life with God that over time, as you're leaning into God, as you're in prayer and in the Word, as you're listening for His voice, right? You your authority in the spirit, it grows. And your familiar relationship with the spirit, it grows. You know those 70 and 80 year old, right? Saints that have been walking with Jesus for decades. There's something sweet and rich and beautiful and distinctive and powerful about their lives. That's Simeon. That's Simeon. And third, says he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Well, in one sense, everybody in Israel is waiting for the Messiah, right? In the same sense that everyone in Oklahoma City is waiting for a championship for the thunder. Amen? Come on. Yes. Let it flow. Let's get that championship. Russell? All right? We... We know it's going to come one day. Amen? 
We hope it's coming soon, preferably in our lifetime, preferably this year. Maybe it's a prophecy. I don't know, I'm rolling. But, but, that, but that waiting, right, doesn't change our lives, doesn't order our decisions. But for this guy, Simeon, it was a defining life characteristic. I mean, this is how he's described like at parties. Oh, that's the guy who just can't wait for the Messiah. He's a little bit, you know, loony. There's waiting as letting time pass. And then there's waiting as longing. This is longing. So back to the scene, back to Simeon. He's holding him in his arms. Look at this picture. It was painted a couple hundred years ago. It's beautiful. Holding him there in his arms, probably tears streaming down his face from a, a longing fulfilled. Out of, his, out of his mouth comes a song. In Latin, it's called Nunc Dimittis, which just means now you're dismissing. And it's been sung in the church, by the church, since the fourth century. This is ingrained, embedded in the life of our brothers and sisters who are now with Jesus. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. He's staring at the one who has promised from the very beginning. When sin entered the world, God promised a savior who would crush the head of the enemy. Years of time, prophecies given, the desire of all nations, here, here in my arms. God has invaded as a baby and not to judge, but to save. Up to this point, the Jewish people had hoarded God for themselves and not been the light to the rest of the nations that God had called them to be. Simeon says, God has come for everyone. He alludes to prophecies made about Jesus 700 years before. Here's just one of them, Isaiah 49. It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. So most of us are Gentiles in this room, non-Jews. This is the first Christmas announcement saying Jesus has come for us. This is beautiful. This is a moment. Two points of application. God has provided a savior, so worship him as king. Simeon blesses God. There is so much sentiment around Jesus and Christmas. You know, what, a, what a good guy. Great story. So inspiring. That you literally have to intentionally like wade through it to get to the reality and the power and the scandal. And here it is. God has come in the flesh. He claims to be God as he grows up, which means he claims to own you. Yes, Jesus claims to own you. So no one can remain neutral about Jesus. Your attitude towards him will determine your eternity. Your attitude towards him will determine your eternity. Listen to what of all people Napoleon said. 
Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I myself have founded great empires. But upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love. And to this very day, millions will die for him. All these were men. Jesus Christ was more than a man. Across a chasm of 1,800 years, Jesus Christ makes a demand, which is beyond all others, difficult to satisfy. He asks for that which a philosopher may often seek in vain at the hands of his friends, or a father of his children, or a bride of her spouse. He asks for the human heart. He will have it entirely to himself. All who sincerely believe in him experience that remarkable supernatural love toward him. This is it which proves to me, quite convincingly, the divinity of Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. Like Simeon, worship him by giving your heart to him. Second point of application is wait for him to save. Wait for him to save. Waiting is longing. We live in between Jesus' first advent and his second his coming again. And as sure as that happened, this will happen. As Christians, we long for the Savior to come again. Look at Paul at the end of his life. He says, Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you long for him to appear? Do you long for him to appear? Because that's who he's coming for. There's a life lived as his, with his coming as sort of an eventual event. And a life lived with that hope as the burning center. By the grace of God, let's live that life. The first advent is meant to fuel our hope for the second advent with new year's goals coming up right at at the top of the list of goals just put to see jesus and let all the other goals fall under that one and then go for it how does waiting for him to save impact everyday life well waiting on god is hard in our culture impatience is a virtue right Impatience is a virtue. The quicker quicker you can have something, do something, know something, experience something, literally the more impressive a person you are. Waiting is uncool. Give you an example. True confession. Till about two weeks ago, I owned an iPhone 5. It's true. I used it. I used it till about two weeks ago. It was slow. I mean, horribly slow, right? I got an eight. It was like a revelation. I pressed the button, you know, the things, and it would just go to that thing, like immediately. It was great. The people in the office congratulated me on my new phone. Some of them even thanked me. (laughs) Like I did them a service. Like I was inconveniencing their lives with my stupidly slow phone. I get it. I get it. Silly example, right? Fast isn't evil. Efficient isn't evil. That's not the point. But one of our addictions in America is information addiction. We're obsessed 
um, with being up on the latest happenings in sports, politics, current events. The social, sin, the social sin is not knowing what's just happened. And the undercurrent of our culture pulls us towards instant fulfillment and a hate to wait on everything. And, and that same undercurrent pulls us then away from rest and contentment in Jesus and anticipation for Jesus. So it is right and good to like limit our tech intake to train our souls to wait. Second thing I'll say, there is a tension in the Christian life between anticipation and fulfillment. Many moments of fulfillment. Yes, God breaks through in our circumstances. We get healed, right? We sense God's presence um, these are things that are beautiful. We ought to anticipate, even expect these moments. We ought to pray for them and pursue them. I'm a kingdom here and now guy. The kingdom was brought by Jesus, and we're to carry that on. But the kingdom isn't all, all here yet, is it? The doctor's diagnosis doesn't always turn out great. There's still injustice in our streets since sometimes grips our throats. We live in the tension. Here's the point. The majority of life in God is lived in anticipation more than fulfillment. Life with God is rarely instant gratification. How many times was Simeon disappointed? How many babies did he hold before Jesus? You know, how many lonely days did he experience? His life verse might have been Lamentations 3.26. It says, it is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Some of you are waiting, longing for some significant things, longing for a friend to meet Jesus, longing to be married, find a job. Um, the waiting on God for breakthrough is hard. Um, hope deferred does make a heart sick, the Bible says. But another Christmas is coming. The Christmas of all Christmases is coming. And God keeps his promises, even if you don't get what you want when you want it. Um, I mentioned a few weeks ago our struggles with infertility and um, one of the other significant moments through that process was dealing with the hard question, um, do we want God more than a baby? In other words, if we, if we only had God and never had a baby, would we be okay? And let me tell you, the honest answer through most of that journey was, I don't know. And sometimes, no. So much pain and anguish and anger and doubt and despair. There's some things in your life, those things. Over time, the prayer for us became, by the grace of God, God, you are better than a baby. For you, maybe that's being married. Maybe that's a job. Maybe that's whatever fills in that blank. But by the grace of God, may you say, God, you are better than that. Because he is. He is. He is. He will sometimes use pain to get you to that point, but the reward is worth the journey. He is the reward not only at the end of the journey, 
but in the middle of it and in the now of it. So Simeon's song is announcing loud and clear a Savior has come. He is worth the wait. Secondly, there is a Christmas confrontation. Um, This is stuff you're not going to get in Christmas carols. Look at verse 34, turns to a prophecy. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, Mary, so that thoughts for many hearts may be revealed. Second point, God confronts us to save us. He confronts us to save us. A lot of questions around this. What's the falling and rising mean? What's a sword going through Mary's soul? What's thoughts of hearts being revealed? What's happening here? Well, if Simeon's song is that Jesus saves his people, then this is the how Jesus saves his people. Start with the falling and rising. This is a huge theme of the life of Jesus. Everywhere he goes, one or the other is happening, right? On the one hand, he goes to the rejected, the poor, the immoral, right? The, the, the looked over, and he befriends, he honors, he pursues, right? Rising. And he, he goes to the ones in power, on the other hand, right? They're called to serve people. And he exposes their motives as self-serving and really disinterested in God's rule, falling. You see examples of this all through the Gospels where Jesus totally and completely upsets the balance of power in Israel. Think of Herod, right? So threatened by a baby that he kills all the babies in Bethlehem. That's his legacy as a leader. And at the end of his life, it says in Acts 12, he stands up to give a speech. The people worship him. It says the angel of the Lord struck him down because he didn't give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms. That's falling. On the other side, think of the disciples. There are 12 young guys. They didn't make the cut for rabbi school, right? That's why they were doing the trades. They weren't chosen. Jesus chooses them rising. Think of the Pharisees, right? Really good guys in authority. It's like, wow, Jesus, why are you so harsh with these guys? What's your deal? And then he exposes their motives at every turn, falling. Lepers. It's amazing. They're untouchables. Touched and healed, rising. The rich ruler, Pilate, Judas, falling, Children, tax collectors, those treated as useless were invited in, rising. On and on it goes. Jesus does what Simeon prophesies. The people looked down on are exactly the ones Jesus raises up, up and the cool ones he takes down. He exposes their pride, and in that we realize he's exposing our pride. You might say, well, didn't Jesus come to bring peace on earth, goodwill to men? What is this? Real peace only comes through pain. The way a surgeon cuts in order to heal, the way a gardener prunes in order to grow. Jesus brings conflict to the human heart in order to save the ones who will receive him. Think of Mary. Simeon turns to her and talks about her pain. 
a sword will pierce your soul also. Mary was going to have to come to terms that her son was a king who was not going to cooperate with her ideas. It kind of takes the Mary, did you know song and like shifts it into a different light, right? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would, would you rebuke you in public? <laughs> no? Mary, did you know that your baby boy you considered totally insane? Right? Doesn't quite roll off the tongue lyrically, but, but that's like the real thing. She would never have had the expectation um, that her son would die a criminal's death on a cross and then rise from the dead. And if you've experienced it, um, you know, outliving your child Outliving your child is a unique agony. It's hard to express. A sword. There's a, Simeon prophesies next the way the rising and falling would happen. He says, so that thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. The way Jesus confronts is when you get near him, you realize the real thoughts and intentions of your heart. It's a hard moment of truth in the mirror. And you have the choice to surrender to him, resist him, or run from him. What's being revealed is whether a person has a heart humble enough to trust Christ alone for salvation or whether the person is haughty and must be brought low. There's a story in Luke 7 that encapsulate, encapsulates in one scene this rising, falling, and the thoughts of hearts being revealed. Um, imagine like a Nichols Hills dinner party on a Friday night. You're in your Christmas sweater. Yep. And uh, there's a respected leader in the community named Simon. He's throwing a party for Jesus. Everyone's eating, drinking, chatting. And this woman who's very obviously a prostitute crashes the party, um, starts sobbing, um, gets down on her knees, breaks this really expensive jar of perfume, rubs it on Jesus' dirty feet and starts wiping them with her hair and you're there in your Christmas sweater. It's awkward. Socially awkward, but spiritually beautiful. Notice anyone and everyone who met Jesus goes nuts with love. Look at in that scene though, who rises, who falls, and what thoughts gets revealed. Luke 7. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he spoke to himself saying, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what manner of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. So he said, teacher, say it. Jesus tells him a story about two people in debt. One had one million, another a hundred dollars. Both got the debt forgiven. The question is, Simon, who's gonna love the forgiver more? Simon says, well, obviously the one who had the bigger debt. Jesus says, you got it. Then he turns to the woman, looks at her, and he's talking to Simon. And he says, Simon, the one who's the honored guest here is her. She's the honorable one in the room. Thoughts of hearts revealed, falling. Now, what about her? What's going on with her? She's standing there. She starts crying. Why? I think if you would sit down with her over coffee, she'd say something like, 
I kept thinking about my life, the things that I'd done, men I'd been with, people I'd hurt, people who'd hurt me. I was thinking about all that, and I knew he knew about all that stuff, and he loved me anyway. And I broke. Like that jar of perfume, I broke. He didn't flinch. And I knew my life was never the same. And then Jesus says to her, I think she got it, but she heard it. Your sins have been forgiven. So where is Jesus confronting you? Not to shame you, not to be mean to you, but to save you, where is he confronting you? Um, if you were able to see Jesus in this moment, he's have a conversation with you, what would he talk to you about? Listen and respond to that. Some of you have been hearing the call of love from God and you've resisted it, or you have run from it. If you're not willing to be broken by his love, um, you won't get his love. You won't be saved by it. Both had Jesus in the room. Both had access to the love of God for them. But only one got it. She did. Because she let the love of God humble her. She let love in. I have a friend I worked with in business uh, for about eight years. And he was in his early 20s. I was in my early 30s. And sort of built a friendship over time. And he was super smart, super talented, great at his job. Um, he'd had a crazy life up to that point, but at this uh, point, he was just making as much money as he could, having as much fun as he could, okay? We'd built a friendship. We'd had a handful of talks about Jesus, but, but God um, really began to reveal the thoughts of his heart um, after a Christmas part party where he got totally blasted and fired the next day. Zero tolerance gone. Lost all of that and about to lose a lot more. He called me that day totally shaken, falling. He started hanging out at church a little bit and uh, just asking lots of questions about Jesus, about faith. He'd followed God in high school a little bit, but he was asking questions. And about six months later, we had a, a men's retreat I'll never forget it. He stands up at the end of the weekend, and this is what he says. He says, I realized this weekend, the word realized, I realized that God had saved me over and over and over again, and I've lived my life flipping him off in my heart. I let him in this weekend. And the room erupted, rising. Simeon prophesied that the thoughts of many hearts would be revealed. It's been happening for the last 2,000 years. People realizing their debt towards God. The things you've done and not gotten caught for, think of those things. The things you said or thought that have stayed hidden, stayed secret. Imagine like all those things, your whole life, everything on a table in the light. You and me, all that, totally guilty. I don't know about you, but for me, totally embarrassed. 
There it is. That's the sin that Jesus not only died to pay the penalty for, he carried actually all of that sin, yours and mine, and for all of history and all of humanity on his body on the cross. And all that anger that you would feel justifiably at all that sin, at all that evil, God felt and threw all that anger on to Jesus who became sin for us that we might become righteous before God. He became that. When you realize that Jesus paid that penalty and carried it and then rose again from the dead so he's alive now and his claim on your life is not imaginary, it's real. He's alive and reigning and ruling and is God. When you realize that God loves you just as you are and not as you should be and like you gotta clean yourself up, but like that woman, you realize it, like the hard truth in the mirror, well then, it all changes. Then, your heart, your life, rises again from the dead, like only God can do. Love humbles us. Love makes us honest. Right? Love changes us as a person, but not love is like this concept in the, in the clouds. Love is a person, the God-man, Jesus Christ, Son of God, King of kings, Lord of lords, Prince of peace, who's come for you. So the call today is, if you're not a Christian, let love in. Let love in. To wrap this up, God provided a savior. He's worth the wait. He is absolutely worth the wait. The way God saves us is by confronting us in our sin, not to shame us, but to save us. He is the reward in the journey and at the end of the journey.